lots of things going on, but tonight we're going to enter into God's presence. We uh, serve a God who's great, and his name is great, and so I invite you to stand and let's worship him together. Yeah. 
Jesus, Jesus. 
of this world.
Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy as we uh, finish up 1 Timothy tonight. A couple of things that I want to encourage you. For you guys, we really want to invite you, encourage you to come join us on our Wednesday morning study as we journey through um, the book of Revelation. And we're working through, next week will be Laodicea, and then we're going to take a look at um, some of the rapture theology and then take a look moving into chapter 4 and, and a number of different things. The other thing that um, I found out today, just encouraging, there's been some questions on whether or not we're still going to Israel, and the answer is, as of right now, yes, we are. Um, we have 27 people that are signed up, still planning on going, and we're trusting the Lord that this thing's going to be resolved um, one of two ways. Either, either Israel's going to resolve it and we're going to be able to go, or Jesus is going to come back, one or the other two. So I'm good either way. But uh, tonight we're going to finish up this study in 1 Timothy, picking up in chapter 5, verse 1, and working through the rest of the chapter as Paul is writing to his son in the faith how to run the church, how to restructure it. And just kind of as a reminder, Paul had spent about three years in Ephesus establishing the church. He spent more time in Ephesus than he did anywhere else in building up the church. They got a lot of his attention, but they also had a lot of problems. He warned the Ephesian elders that wolves would come from without and within. And there's some problems even in the leadership there, so he sent Timothy to go square some things up. And so he's taking a look at church conduct after taking a look at what is an elder, what is a deacon. And, and we spent a good amount of time on that because I think there's great lessons to be learned in understanding where we fit into this, there was a conflict, an ongoing conflict, with the Hellenistic widows in Ephesus and kind of the, the, the two lines of treatment between the, the Jewish widows, the Hellenistic um, widows that were in there. There was a lot of conflict that was going on. There was also, uh, he also has to address the elders that are there and taking care of them. Verse in, in dealing with their pay, there's a third group that Paul will address, and that's the Christians that, or the slaves that were becoming Christians, and their attitude towards their masters. And then he's going to commend Timothy for the hard work of a minister and being that minister. And, and so tonight you're going to kind of see a little bit of 
of how church should run in a, in a sense of how it relates to these different special groups. There's always different groups within the church. Some of you are a little bit more different than others, but that's okay. We love you anyways. And, and we're all in our uniqueness making up the body of Christ with unique needs. And so within this, as an elder and, and spiritual leader in the church, as the elders, we need to be able to lead with understanding the different needs of those that are in their groups and, and not to show partiality over one group over another and to lead well. Keep in mind, what is the lane of the spiritual leader? It's to teach the Word of God, to make disciples, and to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so Timothy, as a young man, is needing some coaching and some help from Paul in navigating a very difficult church that has a lot of things going on within it. And so we're going to pick up, in, in, as I said, in chapter 5, dealing with one of the issues. And this was how to take care of the, the, the widows that were there. He says this in chapter 5, verse 1. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, and to a younger man as brothers, and the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. And now she, who is a widow indeed, and who has been left alone, has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as, as well, so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own house, especially those of the household, of his household, he has denied his faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A widow is to be put on the list only if she has not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she's washed the saints' feet, and if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself every good work, but refuse to put the younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. Now, at the same time, they also learn to be idle, as they go around from house to house, not merely idle, but also gossips and busybody, talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. And if any woman who is a believer has a dependent widow, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed." Now, the, Paul starts out to Timothy, and he says, look, first of all, Timothy, understand, you've got to teach the church to respect their elders. Now, I think that's something that's important for us to understand, is, is to understand that, that the elders, whether they're an elder male or elder female, do deserve respect. And they do deserve honor, and they do deserve care, but especially the widows. Now, in the Near Eastern culture, they didn't have the kind of system that we would have the 
the, the social cares that we would have within this. And so there was a lot of struggle that was going on. And as a younger man, Paul warns Timothy, as you're dealing with the elderly, again, be respectful within this. Lots of times in churches, there is conflict because of differential in age. And I, I really love our church because we have a very blended church. We have, we have some really young people and, and some really old people. We have some people that come from different walks of life, and, and it is a blessing. Why? Because within that, that variety of age and that blended age, we have the cap- capacity to be able to learn. And we want to be able to learn. We want to be able to teach. And I think the respect needs to be mutual. Not just the, the younger people respecting the older people, but the older people respecting the younger people and approaching them in a manner that they can teach them and train them and, and raise them up and, and disciple them within that. And so lots of times the, the older people are seen as the throwaway generation. You are not. You have many years of experience, especially those of you that have many years of walking with the Lord. We, we have a couple of gentlemen that graduated to be with the Lord recently. And, and the wisdom and the experience that they had in their years of walking with God is tremendous, especially for, for our younger men to be able to do that. But, you know, I'm not that young, but I looked up to these guys to be able to, to do that. But in the same token, there are younger guys that look up to me and consider I'm old. But the other side is listening to younger people and understand how they communicate in their generation. Have you ever taken somebody out and just said, you know, tell me what your generation's all about. Help me to understand them. You'd grow a lot. Instead of throwing them away and say, well, you're young and you don't know anything, they actually can be a bridge to communicate the gospel to the next generation within that. So, so Paul, in essence, is really telling Timothy to value or to show honor. Now, specifically in the text here, where he says to honor the widows who are widows indeed, the word that is, that is used here is timah. And it literally means to, to value to the extent that you are providing for them financially. It is not just to show honor in and say, well, I honor you, but it's honor in providing financially for the widows that are there. And so in this, he wants them to honor the widows with financial assistance. And the law would guard Israel against abusing widows. In fact, in, De- in Zechariah chapter 7, verse 10, it says this, And do not oppress the widow or the orphan or the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. So when we think about the widow or the stranger or the orphan, these are the people that are the least and the marginalized in society. And so Israel was commanded to look at these people and to honor them and provide for them. What would it be like if the church today, Big C, if the church today stepped in and took care of the widow, the stranger, and the orphan? Financially. What would it be like? We wouldn't have a need for a government to step in and to do what they need to do. I think in many ways the church has fallen short of making those provisions. But it's not just the church's responsibility, as we'll see later. It's also the family responsibility. And again, I love our church. We have a benevolence fund that is tremendously blessed. And we have the capacity to be able to help out widows and 
and strangers and the orphans because we take this, this law to heart. It really is that true religion undefiled to be able to minister to those that are there. Um, we think about you know the, the idea of social security. The social security really is the society of the church, the community of the church, to be able to provide for those needs and to care for them. But in that social community, we also got to understand why it doesn't work right now. Why it doesn't work right now is because the community is not in the church. And we need both parts to come together. If the community was in the church, fellowshipping in the church, then the church as the community would be able to take care of the people that are in the community. But so many people don't want anything to do with the church. They don't want anything to do with God. And so they put themselves out on the margin away. They come to the church because, well, the church needs to help me financially. And we want to. But we also want you to know Jesus. We want to live in community together in, the, in, in a, a community of faith. So as is our practice, and if you ever wonder what we do here at WCF, if there's a need, we send them to community action. And we partner with community action. And then from community action, we get it, what we can partner with. And we support community action. We send funds to community action to help support that work. And where their funds can't cover, then they get a referral and then they come here to the church. And so what we've done is we've actually taken this concept and put it into practice. Whereas WCF is part of the community and part of the social network of the community to help meet people's needs within that. So who are the people that really need help? Well, who is the widow indeed within this? Well, the widow indeed is one that needs to be cared for by the church because she doesn't have family of her own to take care of her. So the church becomes her family. This widow is a woman whose husband, which was the primary source for her, her provision, her husband died. Her children are not there, and especially her sons. You say, well, Carrie, why is that important? Again, Near Eastern culture, you've got to understand it in context. In Near Eastern culture, all property belongs to the men. And so the property and the possessions all go from the husband to the son. And it passes down that way. The inheritance works that way. The property goes that way. If you are Jewish, the land always stays in the family and it goes from the husband to the son. And if you remember when we studied Judges, there was... There was a family that in the inheritance that had only daughters. And they had to make a special provision for the daughters to get some of the land. Why? So that when they would have sons, then they would have provision for that family that is there. So the widows indeed are those that don't have a male relative to support them. And it could be a kinsman redeemer that could step in. So if there wasn't a son, if there was like a nephew or some kind of kinsman redeemer like Boaz would be in there, he could step into that. So one of the things that he gives to Timothy is that there is a line by which you should follow. First, as a church, you should direct the widow to be supported by her own family and bring them into that responsibility of taking care of her to making provision for that child. And, Tim, and Paul says to Timothy, this is the practice of piety that is there in caring for the the family member this idea of piety is is and you got to understand that when you are supporting that family member 
It is a religious act of service as unto God. This holiness, this piety, this righteousness, it is a religious act to support that family member that is, that is within need. The word piety is usobeo, and it literally means religious duty or obligation that, that is within that. And we have a lot of broken families in our world today, don't we? And there's a lot of families that don't talk to each other. And, you know, they're, they're, they're in that case. And, and I know some families, even recently, that are struggling to, to make ends meet. It's like, you know, they'll, do you have kids? Yeah, you have kids, but they don't, they don't, they don't talk to me. And they don't, they don't want to have anything to do with me. And, and they're struggling. And so some of these widows that are struggling shouldn't be struggling. And I know in some of these families, the one particular one, the son is making six figures and the mom is barely scraping by. That's not piety. That is not an act of service. And they, and they named the name of Christ. And so things got out of balance. Why? As we're going to see later, one of the problems in Ephesus was the love of money. They loved the money more than they loved God. And that kind of thinking had infiltrated the church. And so that's going to be another area that he has to correct. Family is obligated to care for family. In the faith, we are obligated to care for the family, even if they rub us wrong. Because you're not serving them, you're serving the Lord. And, and you're coming to them. So in, in honoring and supporting your parents... Paul says, Timothy, when, you're do, when they do that, they're actually paying their parents back for all the kindness of caring for them when they were a child. You know, one of the things that I, that I really love about the Near Eastern culture, and as I've traveled in, in many different places that's, that I've gone to, um, is you'll see some houses in, in uh, Jordan, for example. You'll see houses that aren't finished. And there'll be like three levels, and they'll like have one level, and the second level will be done. But then they have a setup for the third level. And so I asked our tour guide, I said, well, why is it like that? He says, because the levels are set for the parents. And so what ends up happening is they move the parents and they move the grandparents all into the house as needed. But they only build what they need. But when they get to where they need the other, the other parents to come in, well, then they build the extra extra floors or the extra things that they need to do. Why? To care for them. And so you look at that, that condition that's there, and it really is honoring the parents. It's showing that piety. But yet the challenge in verse 8, he says, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially those of the household or household of faith, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And in some translations, it says infidel. That's crazy when you think about that. When we stop and we think about this, you're, you're actually, in, in Paul's mind, you're saying you're denying the faith. Well, what are you denying? We think about the two commands that Jesus says. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And in these you fulfill all the commands. So if you're not loving even your family, how are you fulfilling that command. You're not. And so the other thing that I think is that is interesting is this. Why is he worse than an infidel or denying the faith? Question. How is the sinner saved? 
You're saved what? You guys know it. By grace. Through faith. By grace. When you refuse grace to somebody, aren't you refusing the basis of your own salvation? It's a challenge. And in, in refusing to provide a grace gift to others, what you're saying is, God, thank you for the grace gift that was given to me, but I'm not going to show grace to other people. Where you're denying the very basis by which you were saved by. And so the widow indeed needs to be cared for by her family. But if the family is not there, then she's to be cared for by the church. Now what if her family, she has family and the family abandons her? Should the church care for her? The answer is what? Absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. Within this. Because it is that grace gift that God has given to us. And it is an act of worship. Now, within this, this widow indeed, that's cared for by the church, needs to be a widow that trusts in the Lord. That trusts in the Lord. Paul is not telling Timothy to supply the needs for the widows that are out partying that are out running the streets, that are out worshiping idols. That is not what he's saying within the, within the context, within this. She needs to be one that is not, as verse 6 says, she is not giving herself to wanton pleasures. Why? Because she's dead even if she lives. She's spiritually dead. God never tells the church to finance a person's life so that they can go on sinning. That is not what he calls us to do within this. And, and by doing that, the challenge is, if you get in the midst of providing for somebody's lifestyle that is a sinful lifestyle, are you not enabling that sinful lifestyle? So we've got we to watch ourselves. So he says within this, there's going to be some widows. And, and so you call them into an accountability. And so there's a whole list that Paul goes through and says, okay, this is the widow indeed, and the church is going to support her. And here are the requirements, and he has this whole list. One, for a qualification to be supported by the church, it's very similar, if you remember last week, the woman deacon. It's very similar. The traits are very similar, although there isn't an age limit. So the first age limit is a widow indeed that needs to be supported by the church has to be at least 60. Why? I don't know. Was 60 the marrying age? You know, above that, they, they most probably would not get married again. Was it based off of childbearing? Well, one of the requirements was that she had to be at least 60 years of age and a wife of one man, or literally, not married once, but a one-man woman. In other words, she wasn't going around and, and, and chasing, you know, the men. She needs to be focused. And she needed to be faithful to her husband if she was married. Could, you, could um, you be a woman that was supported by the church above the age of 60 that had never been married? Sure you could. It's not necessarily a strict guideline that, that only women that had to be supported by the church had to be married. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to lay down this guideline. And there was some flexibility within this. She had to be a woman that had a good public reputation. So she had to be at least 60 years of age, a one-man woman, having a reputation of good work. Sounds like the, the, the women deacons. She brought up her children. 
In other words, the children that she's raised, she's, she ran the home well. And she had to show hospitality to strangers, kindness and devoted to good works. And an illustration of that is washing the, 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 the feet of the saints. Now, if we were to apply that to our church today, how well do you think that would go? All the widows would have to line up at the door. And if it came in, then all the widows' job had to wash everybody's feet. Any, any widows want to volunteer for that? Yeah. The idea is the hospitality. The hospitality and the humility. The one that would wash the feet was the lowest slave that was at that time or working in the house. In other words, it was one that showed kindness. And you say, well, that's a pretty menial job. Really? Jesus did it. John thirteen twelve to 14 says this. When he demonstrated the washing of the feet of the disciples, he says, So, when he had washed their feet, he had taken his garments and reclined at the table again. And he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then the Lord, first conditional clause, and he is, and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. That's the role of every believer. It's to show kindness. It's to show hospitality. Well, how do you wash another person's feet? When they would walk around town or wherever they were going and they were wearing open, open sandals and stuff, your feet would get dirty. And you'd come into the house and you'd take them off and you'd wash those feet. Mostly practically because they would recline when they ate. And so leaning on your left side, they would eat with their right hand, which is a totally different study in itself. And as you leaned on pillows, and I love when we go to Israel, we go to a place called Abraham's Tent where we get to do that. At least most of us. Some of the people had to have chairs. But, but you lean down. Those feet are sitting really close to you. Right? So clean feet is a good thing. But the other idea is it's very soothing to be able to have that. You know, it's not just a... It, and it's very comforting to do that. Now... What were some of the disqualifiers? Well, it was anything that was not fulfilled in the above of this list. Could not be a widow that was on the support of the roles. Because he wanted the youngest widows to get remarried. He wanted them to remarry. One, it fulfills the, the commitment that God has called us to do to, to get married, to have kids and procreate and, and, and build the church. But the other thing is, it, they're going to struggle with the sensual desires. Their bodies are going to burn for that relationship. They'll enter into a, a, a relationship and this pledge, but then after a while they're going to long to have kids or they're going to long to have a husband and something bad's going to happen within that. It avoids church discipline because then at that point, if you've got, if you've got a young girl, a young woman that, that now is having a relationship or chasing somebody or doing these other things, and maybe crossing the line, now you've got to deal with them. So just, just not allow that to be a qualifier. Because they'll lack so, another one was they lack self-control. Idle gossips or busybody. By the time, most women, by the time that they're 60, they've learned the dangers of gossip and idleness, and they've matured enough to speak less. Younger women? Well they would apply for the show Housewives of Ephesus. 
or something dumb like that because they would get involved with everybody's business. And so, Paul says, no. They, want it, they need to get married. They need to have kids. And in getting married, then they submit themselves to their husband who would be head of the house within them. And then the church doesn't take up that role of head of their house within that or that, that spiritual authority because they'll have their own husband. The other thing that I think is important not to miss is verse 16. He says, if any woman who is a believer has a dependent widow and must assist them in the church and must not be burdened, and with that, it may assist those who are widows indeed. When we think about that, can you think about an Old Testament woman who had a younger daughter that was a widow? Naomi and Ruth, right? And so, so within this, you see Naomi actually taking care of both of her daughters that, that were widowed within that. And taking care of them and, and, and getting them to a place of, of being remarried. And so within this, now if you're a married woman and if you have a daughter that is widowed, then you take care of that daughter. And so you can see this reciprocity within the caregiving within the home unit. But when that is not there, the principle is then the church can step in for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger and be put on, on the roles within that. What would they be doing? Well, they would be praying. They would be showing hospitality. And they would be serving in the church in whatever the needs are. And I love the fact that we have prayer teams that are here. And I love the fact that we have many people that, that are praying, both widowers and widows and men and women and all the way across. But there's, there's great roles within the church. Now, what about the elders? So we have those women that are being paid or on the roles of the church, but there is a financial uh, condition for the elders of the church at that time. And even in our time today, you take a look at verses 17 to 25. He says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. And those who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and in Christ Jesus and His chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias and do nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do, lay, do not lay hands on anyone too hastily, thereby share responsibility for the sins of others, and keep yourself free from sin. And for Timothy, a little side note, parenthetical, he says, and no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and frequent ailments. Now remember, this is a letter he's writing, so he thinks out loud sometimes. Then he comes back to this concept of free of their sin. And the sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment for others their sins follow after. Likewise, also deeds that are good are quite evident and those who are otherwise cannot be concealed. So what is he talking about? He's talking about church leadership. These elders are not necessarily the older men that would be contemporaries of the widows. These would be the spiritual leaders that, that are within the church that are there. Paul addressed them and these spiritual leaders that are there because 
He had already addressed the qualifications of the elder. We know that he met with these elders, or maybe not these exact group, but the elders as a group in Miletus in Acts chapter 20, uh, verse 28. He said, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the flock of God that he's purchased with his own blood. And so the role of the elder was two things. Teach the word of God and keep watch over the flock. That's the job of an elder, is to be able to teach the word of God and watch over the flock. Within this, it it is not to be a trustee, although it's part of the overseeing. It's really the spiritual care of the people that are there to manage God's house and to manage the people within that house. And so to guard against false doctrine. So he says those that are, are fulfilling that role, especially those that labor over the word, are worth, worthy of double honor. Now what does he mean by double honor? Again, that same word is used, Timna, it's financial within this. What does it mean by double? It means the respect and the financial support. There are two facets to, to that that is there. To, the congregation was to adequately compensate those spiritual leaders that are working really hard at taking care of the flock, that are, that are teaching and guarding the flock, those that are holding that role within this. We covered it in 1 Thessalonians 5.12. He says, But we request you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give instruction. So they were to be compensated or paid. Why? Because they're spending their time doing this. They don't have opportunity to work outside of the work within the church because they're spending all of their time working within the work of the church. And so in order to be able to take care of them, you compensate them for that within this. And so you go, okay, well, what does he really mean? Well, then Paul pulls out this like Old Testament law, which... You know, you go, okay, well, what are you talking about, Paul? He says, don't muzzle the ox. He's Deuteronomy 25.4. You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. Again, agrarian culture, they're going to get it. In, in our city, Slicker, you know, I'm not an ox. We don't understand what it is. But you would take your ox and you would tie him up to a, a platform. And as you would cut down the wheat... You would lay it down on a flat area. The platform was like a a bunch of boards and there would be some rocks that were embedded into the boards and you would attach that to this ox. And he would go around and he would walk around and walk and walk and walk and would break the stalks down and then the, the, the wheat would fall off onto the ground and he would just basically trample it and crush it and work it around. But he says, don't muzzle the ox while he's working. Why? Because he's working. Let him eat from what he's doing. Within that, so if the, uh, if the ox wanted to go down and grab a mouthful of, of, of grain and wheat, he can do that and keep working. And the principle and the idea was that the ox was being fed from the work that he was doing. And so Paul's bringing that forward in the illustration of the, of the leadership that is there. And so it also argues from a what they would do is... Um, He would argue from the point lesser or greater. If you guys are all farmers and you're letting your ox eat from the grain, how much more 
should you allow the elders to receive from the offerings that come in to the congregation within them? And you say, well, okay, is that biblical? Yeah, it is biblical. How do we know it's biblical? Because God established it as being the process of provision for the Levites. If you were here last Sunday, then you would have understood that. Within that, the tribe of Levi would get their supplies from the, from the church. Because it was a sacred service. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 9, 13-14, he says this, Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat from the food of the temples, and those that attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So for the last however many years I've been doing this, I've been professionally, I've been getting my living from the ministry that I serve at. Now, there are, are there some churches where the pastors are bivocational? Yeah, because the church is so small that, the, that there's not enough resources to be able to run the church and pay the pastor a living wage, so they have to get a part-time job. Are there some churches where the pastor doesn't get any money from the church? Yeah, because the church is so small that they, they can't do that, or they offer a parsonage or some of these other things. But it's important to understand that ministry is not a means to get rich. It is not the standard by which you you would be able to get rich. As he's going to cover in a bit, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. and, And it was a qualification for an elder. But understand that the elder or the pastor, which is an elder, um, needs to be able to provide for his family. So what happens? What happens when the when the body stops providing and making provision in order for the elders to be able to provide for their family? And has that ever happened? The answer is yes, it does. God warned Israel, Deuteronomy chapter twelve, verse nineteen. He said this Be careful that you do not forsake the Levite as long as you live in your land. God warned them. Don't forsake supporting the Levites. Why? Because they're the ones that provide for your spiritual need. So when Nehemiah went in to rebuild the temple, and he was evaluating all the things that were going on within the temple, and he reestablished some of the provisions that were within the land, Israel stopped supporting the Levites, forcing the Levites to return to their fields. If you remember when we talked about the 48 Levitical cities last Sunday, They all had land, pasture land within the cities, but they were to provide the ministry of presence within those cities. But what happened was they stopped supporting the the temple work. They stopped supporting the Levites, so they said, i got to feed my family, so I'm going back to farming. And so they did. So Nehemiah says this, Nehemiah 13, 10 to 11, says this, I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them, so the Levites and the singers who performed the services had gone away, each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And then I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. So what did Nehemiah do? He went in and he chastised the people and he says, Look, you're not funding the ministry. And if you don't fund the ministry, they leave. And if they leave, then the spiritual presence, the ministry of presence, 
is not functioning. And, and that led to the decay of the temple worship and the worship in the land. And we see so many churches today that are closing, and, and for a number of different reasons, but we have less people going to church and more churches struggling financially than, than ever before. Why? Same problem as Ephesus. Love of money within this. So Ephesus was a very wealthy city. Why did he deal with it with Timothy to, to, to square the church up? Because the church stopped providing for the widows and they were not providing for the elders. And so with that, he saw it as a threat to the existence of the church and the finances that were within the church because they were spending more money on themselves and their pleasures. Paul says to Timothy this, when you teach the elders this, that the, the elder is worthy of his labor. He has to do the work, which means that if he's not doing the work, don't pay him. If he's not an elder, an elder indeed, if he's not studying the Word of God, bringing the Word of God, and spiritually leading people, don't pay him. He's worthy of the work within that. And, and to be in that place. But Jesus said even that the, the worker is worthy of his support. Matthew chapter 10, 9 and 10. says, Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money, belts for bags for your money, even two coats or sandals or staff. No, the worker is worthy of his support. When he sent the disciples out, he said, Go work hard. And whatever they give you, accept it. Why? Because you need to be worthy of the work. Spiritual leaders need to be first in, last out, and they need, to, they need to work hard at meeting the needs of the people. Spiritual ministry and eldership is not a nine-to-five job. Any pastor or any ministry leader that punches a clock and says, my time is up, needs to go get a regular job. It's a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week, nonstop job. It's a lifestyle and you have to work hard at it, within it. But when you work hard, you are worthy of double honor, worthy of respect and accountability. Notice what he says this. The other part of being worthy, he says, don't lay hands on anyone too hastily, thereby share responsibility for his sins. It is a high, high calling and worthy of accountability. So he says, do not accept any accusation against an elder by one person. Why? Because pastors become a target. I, I, if I had a dollar for every time that somebody had an accusation against me, I wouldn't have to have any money from the church. I'd be rich. There's a lot of people that will make accusations. and Why? Because they get frustrated. I even heard about some tonight on the way here. People want to slander you as a spiritual leader. And people go, yeah, I don't want that job. They'll slander you. They'll talk about you and all of these other things. They'll gossip about you. And they'll discredit you. Mark Twain once said this, a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on his shoes. And that's true. You think about this. Satan is the father of lies. And he wants to defame the reputation of elders... And all it takes is one person to say a lie about you and starts discrediting your ministry. 
That's why in 1 Timothy 3, he says you have to be above reproach. They're still going to make accusation. But then to Timothy, he says, look it, when it comes to disciplining an elder, don't take the accusation from one person. There needs to be two or three witnesses that are there within this. And it's an Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. You need two or three witnesses to confirm the matter within that. So don't entertain these, these things. Elders need that special protection to guard their reputation within that, but it doesn't set them free. When you get the two or three witnesses... Then you hold that elder accountable. What do you use for that? Matthew 18. Two or three witnesses, you go have a conversation with him. And if he listens, great. You gain a brother, you've dealt with it. But if he doesn't listen, then you need to go to him again, and you need to go to him again, and eventually it goes to the church. It's interesting that, that he says here, not to receive this accusation uh, against him, but by two or three witnesses. But notice verse 20. Those who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest will be fearful of sinning. Pastor Joe, you need to stop sleeping with your secretary. What? That's okay. We have an agreement, my wife and I. What? No. We're polyamorous. It's a new word I learned. It's a horrible word. And you go to them and you say, well, you need to stop that. No. Well, you, yes, you do. It's sin. Well, if you keep on sinning, then we're going to set, publicly declare that that's sin. Why? To teach others not to sin. It is one of the few places in the body of Christ where public rebuke has to be made known to everybody because it's such a high calling. And, and these pastors that, that we use this term fall from grace to try to soften the landing end up going and doing it again. I could name five right now that I know that were publicly announced as sinners and publicly confessed, I'll never do it again. Guess what they're doing? They're doing it again and they're back in the pulpit. Paul says, no, it should not be. Embedded in this text is the purpose of public discipline. Public discipline is meant to teach people, don't do it. Don't sin. It's to create a situation of public accountability. Discipline makes the example of the sinner so that others will not can do that. But it's going to hurt his feelings. We shouldn't embarrass him. Okay, so you're ready to throw the whole church to hell in a handbasket because you're worried about the leader's feelings. So now you throw away the whole church. No. No. It doesn't work that way. It, it, it needs to be an example so that they know what sin is. This public discipline is meant to be a deterrent to prove that sin is not accepted, especially in leadership in the body of Christ. It's not meant for public humiliation, 
But if this is in fact an accountability, the fear of being publicly disciplined will be part of the discipline that keeps you from sinning. But we've lost that. So he says to this, so you don't have to deal with that public confrontation. Select your elder carefully and slowly. Those that are spiritual leaders, you need to take time. And Paul says, how do, why, why do I take time? Because you want enough time to watch somebody's lifestyle to see if they qualify. In our day and age, though, and especially in ministry, so often, and, and, and we do this in church all the time, wait, you got a pulse? You're now a leader. We shouldn't do that. We should slow down. We should see somebody's life. Is it guaranteed that we're going to be right in watching somebody's life? Or can they hide it? Yeah, they can hide it. But Paul says very clearly, their deeds will be evident, verse 25, but their deeds can also eventually be concealed, but not for long, within this. Proverbs 10.9 says this, He who walks in integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will be found out. It will be found out. And this church has experienced that. It took some time, but it does. And so Paul is telling Timothy that you need to have a good guideline to watch somebody's actions. And I think we need to be a bit slower. You know, it, it's super easy to hire somebody. It's really, really hard to fire them. To, 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 to remove them from that position of leadership. And while they're in that position of leadership, they can cause so much damage. That is within this. So we need to be cautious about that. And so young Timothy, pick your elders well. He moves on. Concerning the, the, the Christian slave, the slave that becomes a Christian in there in verse chapter 6, this group of, of Christian slaves, pretty simple. He says, all, all who are under the yoke of slaves are to regard their own masters, note their own masters, as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against or slandered, blaspheming literally. Those who have believers as their masters must not disrespect, be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but serve them all the more, because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. So he says this, and, and understand again, slavery in the Greco-Roman times was normal. It was just part of life. It was very common to have slaves. And in the process of, of so many people coming to faith, and even slaves were coming to faith, the slaves were coming to faith, they were regenerated, they were born again, and yet then they were going back to their unbelieving masters, and they were saying, well, I've been set free by Christ, I'm not really the kind of slave that you want me to be. They started telling their, their, their masters, what for? He says, No. No, because when you act in a manner that's unbecoming of your calling, you, you blaspheme the work of the gospel that is within this. You think about this idea of, of the Christian. They're free, yes. But we should never use our freedom as a cloak for entitlement. And that's the danger. I'm a slave and I've been made free in Christ. Okay, but does that make you entitled to act like a jerk? No. 
And then if you're fortunate enough to have a believing master, you really need to show them double honor. The whole concept is that as a Christian slave, you're witnessing by your work to your master. And you're not to slander them or talk bad about them. And I know people that are employees never talk bad about their bosses. I know it never happens. That you all are doing such great employees. But when you have a, a boss that's a real jerk that gets on your nerves, it, it can be real easy to talk bad about him. And if he's a believer, all that much more. And, and so the challenge for the slave is, is to honor him. You, you think about this. Paul covered this earlier in his letter in Ephesians 6, 5-9, through 9, to this very church. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Fear and trembling and insincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with good or with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he'll receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free or masters do the same things to them and give up threatenings knowing that both the master and yours in heaven, and there is no partiality in him. In other words, masters, you've got to treat your, your slaves right, if you're a Christian master. Slaves, you've got you to work hard. In fact, you've got to work double hard, not as I service. The idea is that, that the slave just doesn't say, hey, the master's coming, we've got to work really hard, look really good. Oh, he's gone, jerk. No, that's not how it works. That you're to work for the Lord, because the Lord is watching one, and He really is the ultimate master. I, when I first got saved, I experienced this as as a believer, and I was super excited. I've probably shared this before, you, but it, it it was a turning point when when in my life where I re, this this passage just really rang true. I got saved at, at Calvary Costa Mesa, and I was super excited. And I was working in a print shop. And it was a small little mom and pa print shop. Mary Lou Phillips and, and Bill Phillips were the owners, and it was Phillips Printing, and, and their son worked there, their, their daughter-in-law worked there, and I was working on the press and all these things. And, and Mary Lou would make me lunch every day. She had this little kitchen in there, and she treated me like a son, and super excited. And they took me in and taught me the trade and all that, and I was part of the family. And I had been working there for a couple of years and just just really love these people. And I got saved and I was super excited. And I came in on a Monday morning and I'm going to say, Mary Lou, you're not going to believe this. I said, I went to church. I said, you, you went to church? Now Mary Lou, was, she was Episcopalian, right? So they were, so she knew about church. And, and said, you went to church, which was shocking because of the way I lived my life. And she knew how I lived my life. Yeah, and, yeah I went to church and I got Saved. I became a Christian. And her countenance fell. And I go, I thought you'd be excited. And she says, I'm sorry. I don't think you're going to be able to work here anymore. And I'm like, why? I thought you'd be excited. I mean, you go to church. and She goes, yeah. But every one of those born-again Christians that have ever worked for me 
They never want to work. All they want to do is read their Bible and pray and witness and, 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 and do this. And they never get anything done. And they always want all this time off. And they, 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 they are just doing... We have a family business and we don't have a lot of profit margin. So I think I'm going to have to let you go. And I said, I'm sorry. Will you give me some time? And she said, yeah. And I was bound and determined to show her what a good, godly worker was. And I was. And I was first in, last out, and worked hard. And, and went to both of their, their funerals and, and was part of the process and, and of, of the business and stayed with them for a really long time within that. But the problem is, so many Christians become spiritually entitled that they become very poor workers. And that should not be so. So Paul's writing to these slaves saying, look it. You work, and you work hard. And you're working for the Lord. And that's rung true to me because he says, if you don't, you are slandering or blaspheming the very gospel that saved you. And he challenged them. Finally, he ends this with a list of perspectives for Timothy. He says, look at Timothy. You need to have these perspectives. It's a very quick bullet point list that he works through to the end of this chapter. He says this, teach and preach these principles. Kind of fast forward and you can kind of look through them all, but they're bullet points. Teach and preach these principles. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy and strife, abusive language, and evil suspicions. And constant factions or frictions between men of depraved mind and deprived truth who suppose that godliness is a means of great gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when it's accompanied with contentment. For we have brought nothing into this world and we can't take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering with all these things, we should be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is, note, a root of all sorts of evil, and some are longing for it to be wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves of many griefs. Goes on, flee from these things, you man of God. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testifies the good confession before Pilate, that you keep the commandments without stain and reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He will, who is, who is blessed, only sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be glory or to him be honor and eternal dominion. 
Amen. Oh, and instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on uncertain riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation, a future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. O Timothy, guard yourself, or guard what has been entrusted to you and avoid worldly and empty chatter, opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed themselves have gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Paul ends with these bullet points. And he says, teach the truth. Basically, he said, teach the truth. There are conceited and ignorant false teachers. They teach doctrine that's in conflict with God's word. Conflict with the teaching of Jesus. Timothy, teach the truth. And lead people out of the lies that is creating envy and strife. Second, teach the principles of contentment. In verses 6 through 10, it's all about this, this discontentment because they don't have enough money. It's not money that is evil. It's the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil within this. Paul learned to be content. Philippians 4.11 Not that I speak from want. I have learned to be content with whatever circumstances that I'm in. Be content. Why? Because you didn't bring anything into the world and you can't bring it out. Job in 121 says this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Don't pursue things that, that you can't take with you. Within this. And this love of money. So what should you be content with? The essentials. God provides food and shelter. What else do you need besides food and shelter? 22 foot fishing boat? No, I don't need that. I want it. But I don't need it. Food and shelter within that. We, we need to understand that God gives us that and the threat to contentment is wanting more than food and shelter. That's the threat of contentment. When we start chasing the Jones and we say, well, they've got a nicer this or that or the other. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he's going to hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The gospel is very clear and it's transferable to anywhere in the world. Can I be in Mozambique and if I have food and a shack, be content? The answer is what? Yes, and I've seen it. I've seen stick-built huts that have mud and, and plastic bags stuffed in the cracks and kids playing with a smile. They don't need fancy. They need food and a shelter. So what should you do? Run from the things that lead to evil. Run towards righteousness and godliness. Fight the good fight. Hold on to eternal life. Keep the commandments of God. Instruct the rich to fix their hope on God. And guard the truth. Paul ends his letter with what's called a doxology. 
He who is blessed. He who is only sovereign. He who is the King of kings. He who is the Lord of lords. He who is immortal. And he who dwells in unapproachable light. To this one, honor and eternal dominion forever. Why do we celebrate the doxology like that? Because he who is blessed blesses us. He who is sovereign brings peace to us. He who is the King of kings is greater than anything in this world. He who is Lord of lords has more authority than everyone in this world. He who is immortal gives us eternal life. And he who dwells in unapproachable life has allowed you to approach him. That's why we worship him. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for this word from Paul to Timothy. We thank you that you've given us this hope in this future. Lord, we know that, that church is the gathering of a diversity of different people from all kinds of different backgrounds and walks. Yet you bring us together in one body under you, Lord Jesus, the head. And it's a difficult thing to be in and it's a difficult thing to lead. Yet you called us to, get, to be together with one heart, one soul and one mind under one Savior, the Lord Jesus. As we close out this, this letter of Timothy, help us to lead well and, and to do ministry the way that you've called us to in holiness and righteousness and lead people to the cross. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. It's your breath in our lungs So we pour out our praise more out our praise, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you only. You give life, you are love, you bring light to the darkness, you give hope, you restore. So we pour.
Amen. Praise Jesus. Have a good rest of your week. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.